0: Good afternoon and welcome to the 147th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles, I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we will discuss the challenges in understanding the social impacts of the pandemic with Eric Jensen and Eric Kennedy. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. We have a big week on COVID calls. Really looking forward to my discussion today. I hope you heard yesterday's conversation about small business and the pandemic. Great call lined up for tomorrow, which I'll tell you more about at the end on Thursday. I'm talking with Olivia Troy, who was a member of the Coronavirus Task Force supporting Vice President Pence and left that position and has now been outspoken about the difficulties that she faced in that role. And on Friday, for the 150th, if you can believe that episode of COVID Calls, it's a brothers and sisters episode. And I will be joined by almost all of my brothers and sisters. I have six of them, five of them will be able to join me on Friday, we'll talk about what it's been like to keep up sibling relationships during the pandemic. As of today, October 13th, 2020, there are 1,082,928 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 7,817,863 cases in the United States up from 7,779,251 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 215,355 deaths From COVID-19 reported in the United States, that's up from 214,917 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Harold Betters, known as Mr. Trombone. Dies at 92. This was written by Scott Mervis, published in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, October 12. Most of Pittsburgh's jazz legends got a taste of the national spotlight and decided to move on to bigger cities, bigger scenes. Harold Betters, who died Sunday at 92, got his taste and made the choice to keep people entertained closer to home. The trombonist, who was an institution in the Pittsburgh jazz clubs for decades grew up one of seven children in a musical family in Connellsville. His parents owned the night spot, his parents owned the night spot, betters grill and hotel. His older brother, Jim was a trumpeter and his younger brother, Jerry sang and played drums. Harold picked up the trombone in grade school and during his days at Connellsville High School, he played dances emulating the great Tommy Dorsey. Then I met Jack Teagarden in Pittsburgh and began imitating him, better as told the post Gazette in 1964, though his biggest influences became J.J. J. Johnson and Benny Green. He spent two years at Ithaca College in New York and two at the Brooklyn Conservatory of Music before being drafted into the Army where he performed in the 308th Army Band at Camp Edwards in Massachusetts. After his discharge in 1952, he landed in Boston where he met his wife Marjorie with whom he started a family. During that decade, he toured in a band with comedian and civil rights activist Dick Gregory and then the Ray Charles Orchestra. Touring in the South, they would play separate shows for black and white audiences. I told a cop at the front door, I play with Ray Charles, he told the Post-Gazette in 1985. He said, I don't give a damn who you are. You go in the back door. And I was shocked. Because touring didn't suit him, Betters settled back in the Pittsburgh area where he became known as Mr. Trombone played in combos that included his brother Jerry. They would jokingly emphasize their sibling rivalry and recorded dozens of albums, starting in 1962 with At the Encore. His discography would include the 1964 hit Do Anything You Wanna on Gateway, along with three albums for Reprise records. Among the legends who would jam with the Betters brothers at venues like the Crawford Grill were Max Roach, Dizzy Gillespie, Stanley Turrentine, Roy Eldridge, and Sonny Rollins. While playing in Shadyside at the Encore, sometimes known as the house that betters built in the 60s, Harold was spotted by Merv Griffin, who booked him on his variety show. He also did multiple appearances on the Mike Douglas show when it was based in Cleveland. Back at home, he was a fixture at Three Rivers Stadium for Steelers games and even made Super Bowl trips with the team. In that 1964 interview with the Post-Gazette, Betters said jazz men starve because they pay for musicians, and the kids buy rock and roll records, plugged, promoted, and exposed by the disc jockeys. He advocated for seminars on jazz so the public could better understand it. Mr. Betters' own approach was to focus on melody and play music that would appeal to broad audiences, including putting a jazz twist on pop tunes. He sometimes called himself a rhythm and blues jazz trombonist. Mr. Betters would lament the decline of jazz's popularity after the 60s and sometimes question his own choice to play it. As he told the Post Gazette in 1985, the greatest consolation is when people say, Mr. Betters, you made my day. He would make a lot of people's days, performing from his teens right into his 90s, even as he suffered from Bell's palsy. Harold Betters was such a great player with a big sound and the ability to play the blues said Pittsburgh trombonist Reggie Watkins. While touring, sometimes I'd get the chance to hang out with other trombone players in other parts of the world, and they'd always ask about Harold. The only thing bigger than his sound was his heart. His son, Harold, announced his father's death on Facebook Monday, writing, he had a very happy and loving life and we were blessed to have him for 92 and a half years. He will now be at peace with my mom, Bunny Tim Betters. he was my rock, my friend and my hero, and I loved him more than life. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. Let me introduce my guests. Dr. Eric A. Jensen is a social scientist specializing in evidence-based science communication and public engagement with research. He's a sociology professor at the University of Warwick in the UK who works as a senior researcher on the German government-funded research project Viral Communication, Public Responses to the COVID-19 Pandemic, and on a representative survey of Irish COVID-19-related public attitudes funded by Science Foundation Ireland. His books include Culture and Social Change, Transforming Society Through the Power of Ideas, Doing Real Research, A Practical Guide to Social Research, Science, Communication and Introduction, He's lead editor on a special issue in the journal Frontiers in Communication on the theme of evidence-based science communication in the COVID-19 era. Dr. Eric Kennedy is an assistant professor of disaster and emergency management at York University in Toronto, Canada. His expertise is in the human, social, and policy dimensions of emergency management, with emphasis on decision-making and research methods. His research focuses on wildfire management and preparedness, but he's also the principal investigator leading a national project monitoring the social dimensions of COVID-19 in Canada through surveys and interviews. Kennedy leads a working group on the use of survey and questionnaire-based research methods in COVID-19. Outside of this academic work, Kennedy also directs a not-for-profit called the Forum on Science, Policy, and Society, which runs training programs for early career researchers wishing to develop skills working within and at the science policy interface. Eric Jensen and Eric Kennedy, thank you both for joining me on COVID Calls. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having us. Just
0: wanna remind everyone, you can get your questions in, just put them right into the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. Or you can send them to me directly by email at sgk23 at drexel.edu. I see Eric Jensen is working the coffee there. And that is uh he is this is an early morning for him. So let's start the way we usually do, and that's just to find out where guests are calling from and how COVID-19 is looking there. Eric Jensen, let me start with you.
2: Thanks a lot. Uh yeah, I'm calling from Thailand. Uh so it is uh 412 a.m. uh for me at the moment. Uh, which is why the the, the heavy coffee dosage. Um, so here the situation is pretty good for um, for the pandemic. They were very strong on mask wearing early on. I, I arrived here in mid March, and um, from from the UK. And uh, so the 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 mitigation measures were. Much stronger here than um, I had just been in the U.S. Um, right before the U.K. So I saw the kind of U.S. and U.K. situation. And then I arrived here, and suddenly everybody was wearing masks, and um, and the mitigation measures were much more extensive, contact tracing, um, et cetera. So uh, they they managed to get a get a hold of the situation early on, and uh, there's been almost no community transmission now for for months here. Um, so people are starting to get more, uh, like have started to get more lax over time. Um, people are wearing masks less now because, uh, there are only a couple of cases, um, in the last couple of months of community transmission and, um, everybody coming back to Thailand from other places goes into state monitored quarantine for 14 days. Uh, so the, the situation is is very much under control right now. Um, they It's come at a, at a significant cost because uh, obviously Thailand's big on tourism and they've shut down the tourism industry since uh, late March. Um, no foreign tourists um, coming in uh, at all uh, until this month. They've just started opening the door a little bit with required quarantine when people come in. Um, in a nice hotel, but uh, with a with access to a beach, but um, but still um, fourteen day quarantine coming in. So they're taking it very seriously, and it's it's paid off um, in terms of the situation.
0: Did you have to undergo quarantine when you arrived?
2: No, no. They they um, tightened it up fully the week after I arrived in mid March.
0: For those like myself who may not know as much about the Thai um, health system. This is this a highly centralized system? I mean, they were able to, to manage the, the epidemic through a sort of centralized epidemiological approach, or is it more dispersed?
2: Uh, from what I could tell, it's more dispersed. Uh, so they did, uh, like the message was clear from the top. So there was a kind of central prioritization, but the, the responsibility uh, looked to be diffused into the province level, and then from there down to down to cities and towns. And there were a bunch of public health volunteers that were mobilized to, um, to help with checking temperature and uh, doing all kinds of um, steps. They, they locked down, during the lockdown, you weren't allowed to go from one uh, area to another. And uh, there was a, a curfew that was very strictly enforced and all that was enforced and implemented at the local level.
0: Well, you may not know this, and but I, I'm sort of curious, as you, particularly because you pointed to the the tourism industry being such a, a core part of the economy there, and that picture is not likely to get much better. Certainly for Western yeah. tourists, I mean, maybe for yeah. tourists in East and Southeast Asia, um, are they making payments um, similar to the ones that we've discussed? early on in the United States, there were payments that were made directly by the government. Um, they are. To individuals. Yeah. They've done that there as well. They have.
2: Yeah. Um, they've, they've made payments and they've also provided some uh, supplemental support to reduce electricity bills. Hmm. Uh, so to kind of try to get people's expenses down. And then they've done what I think they're doing in China as well, which is to ramp up uh, internal uh, domestic tourism. So they've, they've, provided incentives and, um, and kind of the government's pitching in 40% of the cost for trips to um, uh, for internal tourism. That seems to have worked to create some domestic demand uh, for tourism. And it's quite a remarkable thing to see uh, the beaches that, you know, a year ago would have been filled with Western tourists, um, at least on the long holidays and things, they're, they're filled with Thai tourists now. Uh, which I understand is a similar uh, thing that's happening in China.
0: Hmm. Fascinating. Well, thanks for that. I'm sure we'll talk more about the situation there. I have to point out you're not the only researcher I've talked to who finds themselves some other place than they might expect, but still able to carry out the work because we're also we're all doing our work remote and and the app, the sort of adaptability of your research method into the remote space, of course, is a big part of what we're going to talk about today. Eric Kennedy, let me come to you. Where are you calling from? Sure.
1: So I'm downtown in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I did not manage to make it out to a picturesque kind of, of destination before. Yeah, what's Hannah, wrong? You and,
0: didn't get the email from Eric in time or what's, what's up?
1: up? Yeah,
0: no kidding. I, I should have got that
1: invite. I, I'll i have to check my inbox for it. But um, likewise, I'm, I'm remote for work right now. So teaching remotely and have uh, students who are scattered around the globe for courses like Uh, Humans and Disasters and Disaster Research Methods um, have folks joining in from from all around there. Uh, I mean, the situation in Canada is uh, definitely into the second wave. Um, We had relatively good success in bringing down transmission rates and bringing down um, the case counts, but never in Ontario got down to a, a zero point. And so we've now ramped back up towards um, similar kinds of levels to what we saw at the peak of the pandemic in terms of of case transmission. Um, Yeah, I would say similar story to um, what you've encountered in other jurisdictions where there's reasonable mask wearing um, and still a number of social distancing and spacing measures in effect. Um, But right now uh, we have schools open and restaurants have just reclosed uh, as the state of affairs.
0: Is there any sort of uh, backlash there in Toronto to, like we've seen all over the United States and we've seen in London uh, to uh, mask mandates and other sorts of things? Is that part of the culture there in Toronto?
1: Yeah, so I I mean, I think in some ways the Canadian case sits somewhere between, uh, on my screen we have the US on the left and Thailand on the right, and and I am in some ways I think in the middle. There, There has not been as as much of a passionate and vocal backlash to mask mandates, but um, by the same token, in the second wave, we're seeing a lot of tensions that were perhaps just under the surface earlier coming to the fore. Um, so there has not been quite as much clarity in government communication. There's been more tension between local and provincial jurisdictions about what ought to be done. and. Um, some jurisdictions wanting firm closures, while others want to keep pushing on the economic reopening, um, and so a lot of that is is coming to light in the second wave. I think.
0: Well, thank you for that update. We do have a really interesting uh, geography in the call today, and let me, um, Eric Kennedy. Let me just stay with you, and then Eric Jensen. I'll come to you um, just to give us a little bit of the background of your research trajectory. I mean. Every disaster researcher I've spoken with, you know, in these last several months, it's an uncanny experience to be not just, you know, reacting to a disaster, living through it and then finding it's lasting so long that their research methods might be changing. And I know that's very much what you're interested in in science communication. So give us a little bit of the background story, how you find yourself at this moment doing this kind of work.
1: Sure. So this is... um it's very different for me because my my traditional area focuses wildfire management, right? And um, well, that, uh, in contrast with say, urban fire is much longer duration, it's not uncommon to have fires that last in the week, weeks or even months kind of range. Um, in most cases, you you have some seasonality to it, right? You have a, a couple of months of peak and then some diminishing and, and you move into winter. And while you will get the occasional fire that overwinters, it over, only overwinters in a nominal sense in that it continues to incubate below the surface and then comes back up during the next peak season. So um, it certainly has been um, challenging to be in a research enterprise that has been at full tilt since February, um, as well as to be in a, a position that integrates research and teaching. Um, because this is a moment when uh, I find all of the students are similarly strapped in their capacity and their stress. And so um, the workloads in terms of of caring for and supporting students and achieving the educational objectives have increased at the same time as the research demands have.
0: Eric Jensen, same question to you. Um, I don't think you come from wildland fire. So you're coming from a different sort of research background than Eric Kennedy.
2: That's right. Yeah. Um, Eric, Eric Kennedy kind of uh, recruited me into the uh, disaster area. Um, so my my background is uh, my bachelor's and master's are in communication uh, in the United States at Portland State University. And then I moved to the UK uh, to do a master's and PhD in sociology. And um, sociology is uh, has been called, I think, the dour science. It's... Um, it's a, a place where we look at the the really awful uh, realities of society, things like social inequality and um, and injustice, and all kinds of problems are kind of the the bread and butter focus for for sociology. So, um, in that sense, it, it's it's um, it's something I'm used to the idea of. Uh, that, that you're looking at something that you're in the middle of, because obviously we live in societies that are racked with social inequality and, and problems. Um, and so that kind of general scenario is is kind of similar, but obviously th- this is a more acute situation, which is, uh, I think, going to be a theme that I'll be mentioning a few times, that there there are similar issues at stake uh, during the pandemic to, to what I'm used to, but things are more acute and and there's more recognition in the wider society that we face an acute problem. So uh, less, uh, at least in some countries, less ability to pretend that everything's fine. Um, obviously the United States has some uh, major exceptions to that. Uh, and I, I should also mention that I, I'm um, a US and dual, US-UK dual citizen. So um, um, I'm, I'm quite familiar with both both contexts. Uh, I'll, I'll just briefly mention that um, in terms of the kinds of work that i do normally um, in uh, non-crisis times i I, my kind of core area is looking at something uh, that i've called evidence-based science communication so basically looking at how we can apply the best available evidence in social sciences not only from sociology but also communication and psychology uh, in order to talk about science involve publics in science um, and kind of develop science systems that really work and make a difference for people's lives. Uh, so that's that's the kind of thing that I look at normally. Um, at the moment, I have um, a project specifically, well, two projects that are specifically on COVID nineteen. One of them was not supposed to be. Uh, it was a public attitude. It's a public attitude survey in Ireland. Uh, one of the something they do every five years where they. Find out what what are the the attitudes of the public of Ireland about science, hmm. and we adapted at the beginning of the crisis to include a, a module of questions about COVID nineteen in that uh, public survey. Uh, so that's that's one, uh, and then the the other that is just specifically about COVID nineteen is a proposal written specifically um, for this purpose. Uh, that's the one that's called viral communication, and the the website is viral.com.info. Uh, that's that one is looking at the basically the infodemic. It's been called the idea that alongside the pandemic, we have this uh, infodemic, which of course connects to wider, longstanding issues around fake news and um, and the transmission of scientific misinformation through social media. So we are doing survey research and online ethnography to try to understand. What's uh, what's what is this pattern and and what can we do about it to to make things better? Uh, that connects up with the the one module that I teach. So I'm now part-time as a as a sociology professor so that I can do other things like like these projects. Uh, so I'm, I'm only teaching one one course, which is media audiences and social change. And that's a course I've taught for many years, but I've adapted it this year, so it's primarily, focused on the theme of, of the pandemic and then looking at, at issues around media audiences and social change uh, through the lens of the pandemic.
0: Well, Eric Kennedy, let me, let me come to you. Thank you, Eric Jensen, for that. I, um, there's a sort of a truism that we might want to even take issue with that uh, learning happens in disaster. I, I sometimes worry that's more aspirational than, than, real but i guess that's why i do what i do we should never be satisfied with our level of knowledge and in disaster this is a special one because of the time frame it's not one event it's global i mean it it breaks past our normal sort of temporal and spatial boundaries and I, i just want to get a sort of general sense from you before we start talking about methods what are you seeing right now as areas where social science research is needed the most. What, what do you think are the most pressing knowledge needs at this time? And and we'll also talk about areas where you think it's, social science is rising to the need, but I'm, I'm curious. I mean, Eric Jensen just laid out a few there. I'd like to get your take on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what Eric just brought up about misinformation is, is so critical and interesting. Um, I mean, another couple that I'd add to that, I think social science is, is crucial for tracking both the impacts that these kinds of events have and the sorts of mitigation measures that we can take as a result. Um, so on the impact front, there's a huge amount of data to be collected. Um, and many of the traditional measures, like how many people are employed, uh, are, are very shallow ways of looking at that. Um, and even in those shallow indicators it's hard enough to get good reliable numbers when things are changing and evolving so quickly with so many different layers like being moved from full to part-time or from part-time to standby. Um, and so in, in terms of assessing the impact I think good social science can really help us to identify where vulnerabilities lie it can help us to see the uneven landscape of vulnerability of exposure of impact um, to understand how people are, are changing and adapting and suffering and thriving. And so uh, developing good holistic kinds of ways of, of measuring impact is really important and can feed into policy. The other cluster there, I think, is um, this question around informing mitigation measure design, right? So most, if not all of the things we can do right now are ultimately social and political interventions wearing a mask, keeping physical distance, maintaining quarantines for travelers, these are all ultimately behavioral things that you have to enlist and engage people in. Um, And even the eventual medical interventions that we have are ultimately social ones still. Getting people to take a vaccine is ultimately still a, a social kind of question. And so I think there's also really rich room there for social science to proactively and where necessarily reactively uh, identify problems, so identify why people are are hesitant around vaccines, identify how distancing and economic shutdowns are are affecting them to help make better plans um, and to help add a richness where we can move beyond a world where thou ought to just accept these measures to a, a world where the evidence of how they're impacting people can help inform version 2.0 and
0: 3.0 of how we put those into practice so much to to work with there jensen just to bring you in on this same question
2: yeah i think i mean just to kind of because i i totally agree with those um priorities and i mean the mitigation behaviors are just classic social science um challenges where you can see i mean the three discipline the three social science disciplines i'm most familiar with um that that kind of uh showed up in my uh in my training were communication psychology and sociology and I can see uh, enormous implications and insights that can be brought from, from all of those disciplines for understanding the challenges around mitigation behaviors. One issue that comes to mind uh, from the sociological perspective is the, the there's this kind of recurring theme in our societies, in places like the United States especially, uh, of of kind of taking structural, often global, problems and making them individual problems. So okay, this is um, what's called neoliberalism, uh, where you, you take something that's, that's this kind of macroscopic change and you uh, kind of pretend that it's an individual problem that the individual needs to solve by themselves, um, kind of mobilizing their own resources uh, in order to solve. And then you judge them for failing to do so, even though they, they were set up for failure from the beginning and um, i see this coming up again with things like mitigation behaviors Um, so in particular something like quarantine which um, clearly has economic implications for people uh, who are in a wage labor situation and you know the the percentage of people who cannot work uh, remotely is actually a majority from the statistics that i've seen and so for those people making the choice to go into quarantine Yes, it's a responsible thing to do, but it also has direct economic implications. So it's also a class-based decision. You know, like Your ability to make that personal, individual decision is, is affected by the structural situation, whether you get compensated for the time uh, when you have to quarantine and this kind of thing. So this has been a live debate in the UK about compensation for quarantine time, where the government was hesitant to do that. The conservative government didn't want to. Provide that kind of compensation, but they're kind of coming around to it. And it's a discussion I haven't seen uh, happening in the United States. Um, so, yeah, th- that's one of the things that comes to mind.
0: Just to stay with that, I mean, I've talked with so many public health researchers who uh, they might use a term like harm reduction in describing what you're talking about, which is a sort of seems like kind of a common sense approach. Would tell people, hey, you know, the bar can't be opened or the uh, retail shop can't be open. But then when the owner of that bar or the manager of that retail operation um, can't put food on their table two months later to act somehow surprised by that, and then it's a personal failing because they don't have enough savings, I think speaks exactly to what you're you're illuminating here. And to Eric Kennedy's point about the the, it's not a failure, failure is too strong, but just the the aggregate statistics and the data visualizations that we consume constantly about this pandemic leave us wanting so much in the fine grain around different kinds of industries or different geographical settings or around inequality. And um, so I'm really, thank you for putting all of this on the table um, as areas where social science, I I think it's fair to say in, has learned a lot from disasters and has a lot more to offer policymakers than perhaps policymakers are picking up, but we'll get to that. Um. Just want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Eric Jensen and Eric Kennedy today about social science and the pandemic. And then we're going to turn now, I think, and talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing about how we actually get this data. Um, and so um, all of the social scientists listening to the call just kind of perked up because now it's time to really talk about method. Eric Kennedy, starting with you, let's talk about questionnaires and how you're using them and sort of the pros and cons of that approach to social science research in the pandemic
1: sure so uh i mean as you as you can see in literally thousands if not tens of thousands of surveys uh or more deployed around the world they provide a a really interesting tool for trying to get at things like the impact get at things like um uh, attitudes around mitigation measures and the like um, there are a number of reasons why they're attractive, and we can talk here both about sort of practical reasons that they're attractive and ideal reasons that they're good. But um, on the pragmatic level, there are things that can often be deployed relatively quickly and cheaply compared to some other methods, so a lot easier and, and less resource intensive to survey people than it is to do in depth interviews with a large number, for instance. Um, and so they provide a way of, of rapidly getting a relatively large number of uh, opinions and perspectives attached. And this is both an advantage and a disadvantage, but often collect the kind of data that is um, seen as salient and is interesting by media establishments and decision makers and the like. Um, so you can uh, certainly wield your surveys in a way that garner media attention and get the headlines about percent of people who say they're wearing masks and the like that say there is really important because surveys are capturing what people say they do, and they capture self report. Um, And some things can be self reported really well. Uh, So we can dig into what people think and believe, uh, at least insofar as they're willing to share that. Um, we can dig into the the kinds of um, perspectives that they have about the mitigation measures they're taking, whether they think wear a mask or want to be seen as wearing a mask, but self-report has limitations too. Uh, There's been some really interesting work done here, um, even in COVID already around the difference between self-reported behavior. So who says they're wearing a mask versus people who are actually wearing one. Um, And even more subtle phenomenon, like uh, the way the question is formulated and how that affects people's willingness to report doing these behaviors or not. So for instance, when you ask people, um, about whether they're taking public health steps like wearing a mask or physically distancing, there's a lot of, of bias and, and social desirability effect to report positively on those things, um, that you are doing the, the good thing, the right thing. And if you even open up just in the way you ask the question, some room for people to perhaps admit other feelings without being shamed about them, you can get totally different responses. And so the
0: self-report is both the the benefit and the Achilles heel of survey work. Eric Jensen, do you want to you want to add to that a little bit about some of the the strategies that you use in questionnaire work?
2: Yeah, well, and uh, just to say a little bit more about the benefits of questionnaires. Um, I mean, I'm I'm doing COVID nineteen related research in Germany, and I speak very little German. Uh, one of the um, benefits of, of surveys is that you can do multilingual, um, multinational studies. Uh, there are established practices for getting high-quality translations um, sorted out. So it's possible for people who don't have the kind of highest-level language skills, which would be required for for designing a survey in a in a in a language. Uh, to still be able to, to contribute and participate in, in, um, in research uh, in that way. Um, and that's that's an advantage I've used surveys for um, quite a lot in, in recent years. because I do a lot of global studies. Um, and then the other thing is that you get a kind of uh, relatively fast answer. So especially with online surveys, you can have your results, at least your initial results in a matter of days, and this is something that's just impossible with qualitative research. Um, if you're conducting uh, qualitative interviews, the time to process and analyze that data uh, is substantial. And even if you're kind of putting going flat out, it's going to be a matter of months, not days or weeks to get um, initial answers from it. So the, the, those are kind of known benefits to, to questionnaires, especially online questionnaires. Uh, and then there are also kind of longstanding challenges. Um, one of the issues that Eric Kennedy and I have talked um, a lot about, and that I've I've written a lot about, is the the real problem of not following best practice in the design of of surveys. So most of the surveys that I pick up in the area of science communication, uh, which is my kind of core area I publish in, um, are just bad. They're just violating basic things that we already know are problematic. And that that is also true in the context of COVID-19. Um, and I think it's the same reason, uh, which is that you get in these fields, you get people who are not trained in doing survey research. So they haven't gone through years of training in what makes for a good survey question or a bad survey question the decades of research about uh, the specifics of how you can frame a question to get a more accurate response. And so a lot of things like what Eric Kennedy was talking about with um, with survey questions about mitigation behaviors that give you inaccurate results, a lot of times when I see those, I say, well, of course, these are going to give inaccurate results. This is a badly phrased survey question that's, uh, that's too vague or um, unrealistic or biased.
0: Well, er- Eric Jensen, let me stay with you on this because... Um I think people would probably be interested to know what, give us an example of a of a badly constructed survey question um, if we wanted to know something about, let's come back to the the mask wearing issue. Mm-hmm. So you wanna know German attitudes to mask wearing or German behaviors. T- t- give me, tell us the the bad and the ugly. We'll get to the good later.
2: Sure. Well, I mean, what leaps to mind for a bad question about masks, I and mean, it came to mind when Eric Kennedy was talking is uh, a, just an overly simplistic question that says, "Do you wear masks? Yes or no?" Right. Uh, because obviously, people have different levels of wearing masks under different sure. conditions. I've got one um, right here. I could. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, and if they if they think that you are in favor of masks as the researcher asking them, so you know, if you have all kinds of public health branding as uh, on your uh, study then they're going to think, oh, this person wants, uh, thinks I should be wearing a mask. So if you wore a mask one time in the whole pandemic, maybe you round up and, and truthfully say that you wear masks. Uh, so that's just a bad question. It's, it's inaccurate. And we know that if you want to get precision in that kind of question, you need to ask about uh, what have you done very recently. So in survey research, one of the core principles is the best case is to ask people about what are they doing right now that's where you get the most accurate responses. Uh, obviously, that's not feasible with something like mask wearing. So then you ask about the very recent past. So what have you done in the last 24 hours or seven days? And even even the you would say seven days, not the last week, because otherwise you're introducing variability by, um, if you say the last week, do you mean starting Monday? Do you mean seven days? Uh, so different people interpret it differently. So everything you can do to lock down the precision of Uh, where I interpret the question the same way as the next person, uh, that's really important in survey design.
0: Eric Kennedy, just to stick with this a little bit, help us understand the the scale of time investment from the researcher. So if you were to deploy, I'm assuming, certain kinds of survey instruments um, that don't require the researcher to do any kind of follow-up, or there's no qualitative dimension my presumption is that those are fast and less less expensive. I could be wrong about this. And then the more time the researcher is going to spend in a co- gathering qualitative data, the the, the deeper their investment is going to be. But I, I mean, I might be breaking that down into too simplistic of, a, of an approach. Can you tell us more about, I guess what I really want to know is, is as a researcher, how much time should I expect to spend and what's my return on time investment with different kinds of strategies?
1: Mm-hmm. I I mean, it is difficult to overstate the amount of time that is needed to do some of this well. Um, and I think in some cases that can lead to really problematic outcomes. And and I want to be cautious here because I never want to be a gatekeeper about methods. I am someone who believes firmly in in building a big community of people who can do all sorts of methods and the like, um, and, and welcoming people into that space. But... Um, I'm not an engineer and I would never purport to be able to build a bridge other than maybe with toothpicks and marshmallows around a team building table. Um, but I would never launch into building a bridge because it looks easy. And I think sometimes surveys and interviews can suffer from that kind of perception where, oh, well, there's SurveyMonkey, I can just put some questions together and put that up there and, and whip this off. Um, for our, our national survey, um, it was easily in the hundreds of hours Um, of researcher involvement to work on the measures that we were using to identify and prioritize different issues, to do forward and backwards translation across languages, to get reliable and validated measures where we could, to contextualize in measure design from previous studies so we could compare with baseline pre-pandemic values, um, a huge amount of work. Now, you had asked uh, one other interesting thing that I'll, I'll try to speak to quickly here, which was about relative time investment in different Mm -hmm. kinds of research. Um, And there are distinctive advantages and disadvantages depending on which tool you use. Um, We'll often talk with surveys about how it is an incredible amount of upfront work because you have to get the measures right, right? You have to validate them, make sure they're going to measure the thing you're measuring or you think you're measuring. Um, You need to really get the precision down here because once that instrument goes out, it is out. it then has some convenient features down the road, because I can pull up the dashboard and look at some of these statistics quite quickly, right? I can look at relative percentages, I can do statistical analysis of how Mm -hmm. these break down across jurisdictions in Canada or across age groups or the like. Um, And so in survey research, it it really ends up in some ways being a front-loaded kind of design. With interviews, um, you certainly are doing lots of work up front to prepare thoroughly, so I don't want to downplay that, uh, in semi-structured formats, for instance, you have room to adapt on the fly. You have room to a- ask follow-up questions. You have room to change things along the way. And where you invest a huge amount of time, as as Eric Jensen hinted at, was um, in the analysis of that qualitative data where you have to transcribe and code. Um, and so sometimes we would characterize surveys as being more front-loaded in work and interviews as being more back-loaded.
0: Can you just, just to stay with this, again, for people who may not be as familiar, so if you're doing a semi-structured qualitative interview, what kinds of questions might be better suited to that kind of approach versus the other approach you were talking about, where you deploy a survey instrument over a broader population?
1: Sure. So with the survey instruments, um, another advantage that, that resonates with what uh, Eric Jensen was mentioning earlier is the ability to be standardized and to cut across different contexts. So um, we could deploy the same question. In fact, with COVID, we have deployed the same question in a number of national contexts across a number of of different languages. And there the idea is to be able to keep that consistency high so that we're asking things in the exact same way. Um, We're not introducing spurious effects like my body language or the way I phrase a question or the like. By contrast, qualitative in-depth interviewing with people um, this is a place where we can use body language and, and emotion to draw out responses, where we build trusted relationships. Mm-hmm. The semi-structured element you mentioned refers to the notion that you can add in additional questions as you go to follow up on themes that have emerged or issues that have come up. And so if I unearth something really interesting about how someone's making their vaccine decisions, I can follow that rabbit hole
0: and I can dig into right. it more. So what we're doing right now is a semi-structured interview. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Okay. And and I've thought about this a little bit. I mean, I, even when I first started doing COVID calls, I thought, you know, sh- should I have some sort of a survey instrument that I actually deploy for each guest on COVID calls? Because this is number 147. I don't know at what point COVID calls become statistically Uh, significant, uh, you know, when the end becomes important among disaster researchers. But it's a pretty good cross sample of disaster researchers in in North America, certainly. Um, But I, I, first of all, I'm trained as a historian. So even the idea of building an instrument like that is uh, deeply troubling. Um, But, you know, settling on the interview with some structure and plenty of room to go directions we need to just feels intuitively right, I think, for a lot of historians who are working in this time, I know Eric Jensen. Do you want to come in on anything that Eric Kennedy uh, said there about you know design choices and, and amount of time that a researcher might be thinking about spending?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I, I totally agree with what uh, Eric Kennedy mentioned, and it's something I, I um, always summarize that you're basically making a choice between front loading and back loading your your time. Uh, when you choose between uh, quantitative and qualitative, closed-ended or open-ended uh, survey questions, if you're uh, within the bounds of of a survey, and so if somebody is needing to get a survey um, out the door really fast, that, and you don't mind taking the taking your pain and time-consuming effort down the line, then open-ended questions are probably a better way to go. I mean, um, I was involved in the the survey design process with Eric Kennedy's um, Canada. Um, based survey. And what you want if you're doing a survey with closed-ended questions is you want the most uh, kind of critical nitpicky person you can find, which um, I don't know if I was that for Eric Kennedy, but it's possible. Um, And uh, you want them to just uh, kind of pick apart your survey uh, as harshly and as expertly as possible uh, so that you can mm-hmm. find all the issues before it gets out into the into the wider population. Uh, and it's also really helpful to do pilot testing. And this is one of the things that starts to be a challenge. So I think there's two kind of major challenges um, that I see connected to the pandemic and doing survey research in the pandemic. Uh, one is that you get people moving into the area of doing surveys who don't have the training to do so. And so they make um basic mistakes another is that uh it's a time basically the time issue so you feel the pressure of every hour every day you're losing valuable insights that you could have been getting uh, if you could just get that survey out the door faster and so it's tempting to cut corners to um to skip steps like um pilot testing um which um on the the germany um, based COVID survey that I'm doing right now, um, we are doing pilot testing right now. Um, and the, my, my, um, co-researchers are kind of looking at the clock saying like, uh, uh, we really want to get the survey out. Um, but, um, so it's, it, it is a trade off of like, um, you know, sometimes there are insights that you're only going to get at that one moment in time. And so you just have to, to get the speed. Um, but this is even for people who have a lot of training in survey methods, um, this is a challenging trade-off because normally we work in a context, well, uh, I do a lot of consultancy work, so I have time pressures normally myself, but um, most academic social science researchers have a longer time frame for, for doing survey research.
0: Eric Kennedy, you want to come yeah. on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Sure. And I mean, it takes me back to many conversations that Eric Jensen and I have had over the years and hotels and, and universities where we've... Being up in each other's hair, getting nitpicky with the phrasing on questions and the way that they're structured and the assumptions that could come into play from the potential respondents. And so I think uh, Eric's point about the temporality of disaster research is Mm. is really tricky because um, there's so much legitimate fear about losing what we would call ephemeral data, right? data that is perishable in some way. Um, and so it can be really tricky, uh, to deploy these. I think there's also, um, another element of this. So we've, we've talked some about the item design on the surveys themselves and the questionnaire design, but that's only a small portion of what you end up doing in survey design. So another aspect of this is sampling, for instance, Mm -hmm. who are you going to talk to and how are you going to reach them? Um, and a common trade-off that gets made during, uh, a temporally rushed or financially pressured project, which many COVID projects are, is the need to use samples that are much more accessible so that you can do them quickly and you can do them on the cheap. So an example of of the ultimate cheap sample would be if I just messaged out on Facebook to all of my friends to get them to do my survey, right? Quick, dirty, cheap, but that clearly would not be a terribly representative group. And yet many survey researchers are seeking to make representative conclusions about how Canadians or about how Latinos or about how um, women feel about the pandemic. And so these sampling questions can be really tricky. Um, One of the things that we embedded in our survey, for instance, was a really tiny little nitpicky experiment about the way our recruitment instrument affected who responded. So we tried to adopt a, a very gold standard approach here of doing a totally randomized, um, stratified approach of sampling a wide cross-section of demographics across the country. And we varied um, the recruitment instrument. So some of our recruit, uh, recruited folks received a please participate in our COVID survey postcard and others received, please tell us what you think about healthcare in Canada. And the difference between that alone has generated notable and statistically significant differences in attitudes about COVID, how at risk people think they are, how serious they think COVID is, depending on how we framed the ask. Again, both of a gold standard representative sample, but that little bit of framing of what picture we had on the postcard and what we said the survey was about got totally different respondents in our pool. And so the design elements, it absolutely, absolutely matters how you ask the question and how you structure um, the survey, but that's not where it stops. And, and these kinds of other issues add to that need for expertise in doing these surveys well.
0: That's a really interesting point. And, and just to be clear, I mean, that was, that was just the deployment of the postcard to get to the point where people would be willing to participate in the survey.
1: Correct, yeah. That, so that was our plea. We, we mailed out uh, over 100,000 postcards across the country um, to get people to go to the website and fill in the survey and the like. And that one difference of were, were these surveys about COVID or were these surveys about health resulted in a huge variance. Um, and I don't mean necessarily huge in terms of diametrically opposed, but in terms of attitudes about how serious COVID is and what measures you ought to take, those two respondent pools look different.
0: So let me let me stay with you, Eric Kennedy, on this, because what you're both describing, of course, is um, a necessary aspect of social science disaster research, is the temporal frame. And the idea that there's there's perishability of of data that's collected in the in sort of the disaster time. I mean, I, I think as a historian, I take a much broader sense and I'm always pushing on what disaster time is, but I would never Um, say we don't need to be doing disaster research at every temporal frame, right? So, I mean, this kind of work, though, hinges on getting the researcher, the survey instrument, everything out into the field quickly. That's pressure. Uh, And there's also um, other pressures, Uh, the pressure of tenure, the pressure of, uh, we're human beings, we don't have unlimited Time we do our work so we can get home to our family and we have other things. So there's a lot riding on getting this right. But there's another dimension of this, which in the United States falls into the category of the work of the institutional review board. And I want to ask you about this. So what are the, who are the um, people whose job it is to make sure that when you are under these pressures to do this kind of research, you're doing it in a way that's not causing some kind of stress or damage. To the people whom you're surveying and sure. i've just asked a question that um <laughs> i'm not going to give you enough time to answer it but i but let's try let's take a first pass eric kennedy just to so that people who may not be familiar with the irb or institutional review board or what it may be called in other countries what's at stake there
1: sure um to try and answer that quickly i mean i think you've hinted at one important part which is that we have ethical review boards and they go by different names, but IRB is the shorthand we often use. Um, and these ethical review boards are tasked with uh, ensuring that we're not doing any nefarious things, right, that we're not uh, strong arming participants into participating, that we're not threatening their employment or the like. And so um, those are really, I would say, necessary but not sufficient measures to ensure that work is being done ethically. Um, to, to add in a much more subtle consideration here, for instance, It is notoriously challenging to reach uh, reach folks who um, might come from lower socioeconomic status um, or people of color or the like um, tend to respond to surveys at slightly lower rates. Um, And so making sure that your survey is actually representative of those voices and that your results are not just whitewashed um, in a literal and figurative sense, that is is a really important challenge and that ultimately is a methodological one that doesn't often get reviewed in enough depth, in my opinion, by an ethics review board who is very concerned about am I jabbing them with needles and am I strong-arming them, but have I set this survey up in a way that will accurately reflect voices from a wide variety of communities And lead to good policy making rather than just policy making that's in line with my assumptions going into it. So, yeah, I think this is a a huge topic that needs more work beyond just the
0: the bare minimum. Eric Jensen, let's bring you in on this as well. Your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, uh, I have long argued for a view of ethics and research ethics, a duty based Uh, model of researcher ethics. Uh, In my uh, book, Doing Real Research, um, the the whole chapter about research ethics is about your responsibilities as a social researcher to be an ethical researcher. So I don't like the idea that people can export their responsibilities for ethics to a review board, which is usually not populated by specialists, neither in your topic nor in your method. So they that is uh, often a very insufficient uh, way of of looking at ethics and usually that's not really what they're supposed to be doing like the the, the remit of ethics review board in my experience in uh, the united states uh, but also especially in the united states is that they're actually about legal cover for the institution so they're not really about ethics in any meaningful sense they're about making sure that you don't get the university sued And that's a a very different and much more minimalist, well, it can be problematic in both directions. It can be kind of overprotective because they're not really concerned about ethics uh, in a deep sense and underprotective. Um, So uh, I think the responsibilities are with us as researchers. And so uh, I do go through IRBs when that's um, uh, required by by the funder or by the um, institution. But the two examples I mentioned, uh, I'm doing uh, around COVID. I'm doing one study in Ireland, which is contract research. So it's not going through a university. It's, um, it's direct contract research. And so there, is, there isn't an IRB there. And then the other one is uh, in Germany, where it is going through a university uh, with a government funder, um, a kind of traditional research funding. And so the, in the latter case, it is going through an IRB. Um, there's absolutely no difference in how I do my work in those two context because uh, the responsibilities sit with me and my bar for what what is ethical is far more stringent than than an IRB would be just to
0: follow up on that though and particularly kind of the needs of research in a comparative dimension of a global pandemic i mean you've just pointed to an additional problem that i wouldn't have necessarily thought of but we would like to do comparative work on attitudes and behaviors in the pandemic on a variety of different domains. And we'd like to know about Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea, Germany, Chile, United States, Canada, Germany, Ireland. And you've just explained that the, the kinds of dynamics of getting that research into the field can be very different depending on those, those national environments. How are researchers coping with that? Eric Jensen.
2: Uh, I mean, it is it is challenging. I mean, basically, the, the reason that I'm able to do comparative work is because I know people already. Um, so Eric Kennedy and I were already working together before this came along. And so um, we were able to stay in touch as we're going along. And so we have some aligned survey questions across multiple countries, uh, U.S., Canada, uh, Germany, and Ireland. Um, but that's just on a kind of personal basis. Um, it, it, there, there are some networks that have started to form uh, kind of informally around this, but um, it, it is a big challenge getting standardization uh, in survey design in my experience, because everybody uh, wants their version of a survey question to be the one that gets in and that's used. And so it, unless you have kind of uh, people who all kind of recognize and, and see the, the value in doing it in a aligned comparative way, Uh, It just doesn't happen. And you get all this kind of diffusion of different ways of asking the same thing.
0: Mm. Eric Kennedy, bringing you in on this. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So in many ways, I was really appreciative of the Canadian response here because the federal agencies moved very early to fund a large number of COVID research projects. Uh, We were funded by the end of February um, to be able to do this work, which, which gave a leg up um, and so one of the first things that we were doing was uh, that we put out an open letter to international and national researchers, um, as well as to the end users, right, to the public health agencies and the municipal governments and the provincial governments saying, what do you want to learn to them? And how can we coordinate to the international folks? But those ad hoc kinds of arrangements are really insufficient for doing this kind of work. And um, we really need to build structures that and um, institutionalize these things ahead of time, because when the pandemic has hit is a poor time to be figuring out what you want to know about it and how you're going to coordinate across national contexts. So we're, we're doing this a little bit in the COVID-19 um, world through a survey methods working group um, that I'm running that brings together dozens of researchers at this point, soon to be hundreds working on questionnaire based projects. Um. anyone can join. We run weekly sessions um, that are designed to tuck in just before the COVID calls on Wednesdays um, to talk about the methodological nitty-gritty. And we hear from expert researchers about the challenges they're facing to try and build this community. Um, so that's one aspect. I, I think the other thing, if I can tease a paper that I'm working on right now, um, the kinds of structures that we build to do this research really matter. I mean, it would be absurd when a plane crash to put out a call for research on said plane crash, right? We have standing organizations right. that know what kind of investigation needs to be done. And so as you and, and others have said, we maybe need to reflect on um, how it is that we, uh, we provide the structure and the guidance so that we can capture that ephemeral data quickly without running into a lot of the barriers that Eric was mentioning right. as we figure this out on the fly.
0: Just to make sure people can find this um, working group that you're talking about, Eric Kennedy, I put up the, uh, for those who are listening, want to make sure you can find it. It's www.cemppr.org emppr dot dot o-r-g. What does that stand for, Eric?
1: That's the Semper Lab. So that's my research group that works on emergency management policy and preparedness research. If you look in the top right, you can sign up for the uh, the survey working group and view the past episodes as well if you're interested in learning from that.
0: That's on Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Is that Correct. right? And so You can watch can- our
1: meeting and then join in a
0: COVID call. Right, that's great. We should find a way to sort of bring those two, two together uh, in a combined way in some time. Thank you for sharing that information. I want to just remind people also, you're listening to COVID Calls and uh, talking today with Eric Jensen and Eric Kennedy. I've got a question here from Jorge Benavides Rawson. Thank you, Jorge, for this question. For all the anthropologists and historians who are interested, um, and others who are interested in different, different ways, um, how we're getting valuable information in the moment about this disaster. And he's asking how much mostly qualitative research that is to say, ethnographic research is being done and is being used to do culturally tailored policy, instead of a one size fits all approach. Um, Either one of you want to talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of ethnographic research trends at this time?
2: I mean, I, I haven't seen any ethnographic studies yet, but I mean, that that is part of uh, what we we're talking about, that it's, it's, it's slow to actually produce outputs from it. So the survey um, findings uh, got out there very fast, um, especially the ones that didn't kind of um, go the full academic publication route, but just kind of um, put up a, a quick post online. Um, so there aren't good mechanisms actually for knowing exactly what kinds of qualitative studies, well, I mean, studies in general that are going on. Um, my main source of knowing what kind of studies are coming up is basically through funders uh, and seeing what they've mm-hmm. funded through their COVID calls, um, uh, COVID funding calls. And, um, mm-hmm. and uh, on those, I haven't seen much ethnographic research. Uh, so the ones I'm most familiar with are the UK um, and in Germany. And um, and there, I've, I saw a number of survey-related studies, some qualitative interviewing, but not much in the way of ethnographic. I in the Germany project that I'm uh, Germany-based project that I'm doing, there is g- going to be some online ethnography looking at how um, people consume scientific information on social media and and put that into practice. So we have a mixed methods design that includes. Uh, a large scale quantitative survey that feeds into an ongoing uh, what's called a diary survey where you go to the same individuals every two weeks over and over again mm-hmm. um, to see how their their situation is evolving. And then uh, we also have qualitative elements like um, semi-structured qualitative interviewing, following up with people and online ethnography. So it's uh, many methods in, in one study. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a real challenge here. And I sort of hinted at it earlier around the attractiveness of surveys for end users and headlines, um, where it's, it's very readily obvious how you translate a statistic about how many people say they're wearing masks into a headline for a, a news agency or into something you might report to a public health agency. Um, and so this question of who has a voice and what kind of research is seen as valid and relevant, Um, to public health decision-making is is an important one. So um, I would say that in general, um, folks coming at this from a a public health perspective tend to have a bit more of a positivist lean in their surveys, um, tend to have very specific theories of change in in what they're trying to investigate. Um, And those sometimes get much more voice in the decision-making process and the science advice process than someone coming from a more inductive ethnographic background Um, when I'm, i'm making that contrast it's uh it's about the orientation they're taking to research um so in a survey for instance that's very positivist we might uh be looking at trying to get the objective truth about the number of people who are wearing masks versus a much more inductive ethnographic study where we're trying to figure out how people are making sense of the pandemic in a qualitative way in a way that bubbles up from their responses So one of the things we're trying to do is is pair these together. We're not doing ethnographic work, but we're doing several hundred in-depth interviews alongside our surveys to go from some of the high level findings in the survey down to understanding people's stories about why they're scared of a COVID vaccine, right, to get the qualitative richness from those. And it's a little bit hard to translate that in as sexy a way to decision makers, but I continue to think that those kinds of stories are actually really important. They're early indicators about some of the trust issues we're gonna have with vaccine dissemination. Um, They help to explain the things people are looking for in the public health response. And even though they might not carry the quantitative um, representativeness of some of these surveys, I think that kind of work is so critical
0: you've just described why economists are more cited in in news um, stories about the pandemic than historians and anthropologists. and and I wonder, but I want to go a little further with this because i've this is something that's very much been on my mind, which is also about the responsibility, I guess I'm speaking for policymakers here, the responsibility of the policymaker to constituents. And so when they're when they're put to the to the task to say, well, why did you choose to consult?" this study versus that study, a representative study that seems to somehow map onto a broader base of what would be constituents, you could see why they might gravitate towards that versus a more culturally specific, inductive ethnographic study, which might have only looked at maybe 25 households, will tell you a lot more probably, but might run against the grain of how they're interpreting their responsibility to their constituents. I think I've just spoken on behalf of American representatives or something. But I mean, just to try to channel a little bit of why they might be resistant to that kind of work. I don't know, Eric Jensen, does that resonate at all or?
2: Uh, I mean, it sounds a little bit unrealistic that they're like uh, looking looking at all the range of studies that have been done and choosing the one that's representative.
0: In my world, in my, in my dream world, representatives in the, in the United States Congress do sit down and have a range of different, well, they certainly are presented with them. Whether they consult them or not, um, whether or not their staffs spend time consulting the social science in detail, I don't know. They certainly receive it.
2: Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I I think they definitely receive the survey studies. I'm not sure that they're getting even exposed to summaries of the qualitative studies uh, typically. I mean, there, there is also an issue, um, we should probably focus on especially the part that we can do something about as researchers. And one of the issues is how we talk about research. And there is a, a problem in uh, sociology, in social anthropology, um, I don't know about uh, disaster research per se, but in in those disciplines where there's lots of really useful findings, uh, often they are buried under an avalanche of jargon that is uh, impenetrable for the the uninitiated. Uh, So communicating in a clear way what the practical implications of our research is, is is really important if we want policymakers to be able to use them. Uh, I mean, a lot of my work is actually aimed at practitioners, so um, professionals who are working on things like science communication. And there, too, if I dress up my research in lots of uh, many syllable, long uh, sociological um, terms, uh, as opposed to speaking in plain language about what I did and what I found and why it matters for this particular group of professionals, uh, then it's it's unsurprising if it if it doesn't get used and I, I have noticed um, just in general looking at the the different kinds of research there is m- I've noticed more of a jargon tendency in the more in-depth qualitative studies um, and more clarity about what are the implications and how can you use this as a policymaker or a practitioner uh, in the the representative survey studies
1: yeah I- there's a, a question here about direction of influence, I think. Um, we, we like to advocate on behalf of evidence-based policymaking, and all too often it's policy-based evidence-making, um, where uh, if, uh, if you turn to what uh, the researcher Dan Sarawitz has said, talking about what he calls an excess of objectivity, where we're at a point where any position or, or many positions, at the very least, can be supported with some sort of evidence. Um, and indeed, I think there's a challenge here in that uh, we can run the risk of science and social science studies being used as post hoc justification rather than really influencing the decision making. So I guess I would I would ask to what degree it's going one way versus the other on that. That said, as Eric has highlighted, um, I think there's a lot that the research community needs to do. And And just to add one more thing there. Um, I think that we we often underappreciate just how much expertise is needed for aggregation and synthesis of knowledge, right? The ability to conduct systematic reviews, to bring together bodies of evidence in a convincing and rigorous way that is not just the stuff I know, but a really well-constructed summary of where the evidence is at, that is evolving as the evidence changes, that makes it accessible, that is an incredible research skill that is needed. And it's one that we really see as being second fiddle to doing the exciting discovery-based work. We need to build disciplines and, Cadres of people who are capable of doing that kind of evidence review, because I am less and less convinced that this is about getting decision makers to read studies, because that is only going to feed these tendencies of post hoc justification of whatever position they want to justify. I think what this is, is appreciating that there's a form of expertise that we have systematically and historically overlooked, which is the need for knowledge integration and synthesis and aggregation. And we need to build robust institutions that can do that in emergent contexts
0: um, to support this kind of decision-making. Just reminding folks that you're listening to COVID calls. We really are pretty much up on time, but if you guys will will tolerate it. I do, I, there's one more question I wanna get in because it does, thank you for that. What a great discussion. Um, And thank you for uh, mentioning Dan Sarawitz's work too, just um, really remarkable work. I, Back to this sort of issue we were talking about a bit about the ethical review and some of the, because I think it ties some of this together. We are in a time where we have many more tools at our disposal to make the different phases of the research work available, Um, not just some sort of final product, which then gets mailed out, but that at various different stages, and we've discussed many, I mean, from this conversation we're having right now to the weekly call that you described, Eric Kennedy, um, to the sort of uh, transnational integration, you know, conversation, Sir Jensen, that you were talking about earlier. I'm wondering now, you know, there's a robust conversation about open access for journals and for books. And and Europe has moved this direction, the United States is lagging behind that that really work, if it's publicly funded in any way, it needs to be publicly accessible. Um, And I'm wondering about how far we can push that argument, I've seen some interesting discussions about this, back into the research process itself. So I guess my question is, what's the possibility for the sort of open source spirit or or an, or a, an ethics of open source, which I think some in environmental justice work would consider justice, really, basically research justice. How far have you seen that go? How, how far can we go with that, especially in the midst of a disaster like COVID-19? so that the researcher and the team is actually talking throughout the process, survey design, implementation, analysis, and publication, that the public and the policymaker and everybody else who presumably is going to benefit from this work is actually much more participatory throughout. I know it's a big question, but I think it's an exciting one for a lot of people right now, and I think it does... Maybe Eric, get a little bit to your point now that we shouldn't wait around for the policymaker to pick up the right study and say this is this is what we should do. Eric Jensen, let me ask you first and then Eric Kennedy.
2: Well, I think um, you, you maybe we're mixing together two things there. So one one is um, participatory design and the the participation of right. stakeholders at an early stage in the research and the other is kind of open science and um, yeah, Right. So so um, I mean, both, both are definitely best practice and, and should be expectations um, in general uh, in social sciences as well. Uh, they, they have already taken off in some parts of other sciences. Um, and it's, I think, uh, a, to the discredit and shame of social sciences that they are lagging, in their adoption of both of these things. But um, I mean, what I'm working on more, a little bit more uh, at the moment is open science because um, I'm working on some projects about socially responsible science globally and how we can um, enhance that. And open access and open data are widely recognized as part of, um, of socially responsible uh, research and innovation. And um, so I think this is, Essential in normal times, but in in a time like um, a pandemic like this, um, open methodology and um, kind of making explicit and public your methods, your survey instruments as you go along, has to be a kind of basic ethical expectation. And the kind of very old style of kind of uh, hoarding your your methods, hoarding your your data and, um, and waiting until you have fully extracted every bit out of them in 10 years time before you disclose anything or only disclosing what you have to, to get published. Uh, this has to be retired as an approach and it's just not okay. Um, I think not okay, whether it's publicly funded or not, um, but especially if it's publicly funded.
0: And thank you for that clarification. And 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 you're and I'm. To, I did kind of mash it all together there, but but the distinction you're making there for those who are listening is a, a participant-based design or participatory design is one in which those who you're asking questions of actually help the formation of the question itself, right?
2: Yeah, the question. I mean, there are d- different levels of participation you can include in a participatory design. They can help with the overall design of the study. I mean the in my view the most important kind of participation is actually at the most upstream point of helping to define the direction of what is most important to look at here and that's where uh, one of the more advanced areas for this is is actually patient participation and involvement okay. in aspects of medical research where they look to people who are suffering from particular conditions to point them to point the medical research in the right direction so that they they're not kind of looking in the wrong place uh, so they're looking in places where people really uh, can see there's an issue. Um, so I think that's most important, but it can be at every stage all the way along up up to and including actual write-up and reporting um, although that's relatively rare.
0: Eric Kennedy is is this a, a justice issue for you? Will you go down the road with me if I define open access uh, in that way?
1: Yeah, I, absolutely and. Um, I think both of these elements in terms of of the participatory designs and the open access are are about um, equity and justice in who has a voice in research and who gets access to the information. I mean, so it's it's just a matter of course for this project and for the work I do that it gets published open access. Um, that the data is shared, that the questionnaires are open. and it, it has created some interesting interactions with researchers who have different opinions on this, but our full questionnaires are available. We want feedback, we want input, we want people to look at how we're measuring this. We want people to adopt our questions where they can, and we want to adopt theirs where we can. Um, to me, science is a team sport, and open access and participatory designs emphasize that. Um, I think it does underscore another temporal challenge here because to do participatory work well requires relationships and time horizons. Mm -hmm. And that again is a challenging thing in the emergency management context that can become even more stressed when um, well-intended folks come into the field as a disaster happens without necessarily having built those. And so uh, we need to really emphasize the need for this kind of upstream engagement that Eric cited to proactively plan disaster research agendas in a way that can engage meaningfully these communities rather than in a a reactive way when they're stressed. There's also an equity issue around um, who gets tapped to contribute to these projects and overtapping people um, along the way, particularly marginalized communities Um, in terms of of expectations that researchers can have when they swoop in and expect these communities to give to their projects with little compensation and little involvement. Um, And so I think there are are equity issues that need to be explored there as well.
0: We've heard about this in in, uh, New Orleans after Katrina, uh, in in Tohoku region of uh, Japan after 2011, I think to the point at which the local government there stepped in and basically said, you know, no more survey research because people were, were experiencing fatigue, every door was knocked. Um, and we, as you say, I mean, I think that presupposes that there need to be longer standing relationships um, so that you have a wider, maybe, body of people to to speak to, and that you're you're just more prepared, and also maybe more aware of of the implications of doing that research in such a tightly compressed time. Eric Jensen, you were going to come in on that, and we really do. I've kept my guests too long, but uh, this is a fascinating talk. Eric, a final word <laughs> from you on this.
2: Uh, Yeah, I just wanted to mention on the participatory approach to to kind of um, add to what um, Eric Kennedy mentioned. Uh, So participatory designs have been very fashionable in European research for quite a while. So um, part of getting funded would be to include a participatory dimension. And um, a lot of what I've done over the last um, decade has been impact evaluation studies of projects in general. So looking at how people respond and what difference they make and I've seen a recurring problem in European participatory projects where because they don't offer compensation, because they don't actively recruit in, a, in an equitable way, they end up with um, a group of um, more educated than average, more wealthy than average far more white than average, um, participants, right. uh, being the ones providing the participatory dimension. So it actually just adds a different kind of distortion, uh, instead of being, uh, you know, they, they still use the language of like open and, you know, we, this is really inclusive, but if you actually look at the demographics of who's participating, it's, it's really problematic. And there's an unwillingness to focus on on that, and to um, to provide compensation, I'm seeing more discussion about the need to properly compensate, especially um, uh, minoritized ethnic ethnic um, communities for participation. But uh, I haven't seen that carried through into practice to nearly a sufficient degree yet.
0: Eric Kennedy. Uh- any final thoughts from you? It's hard to tie a bow on this conversation. We've been all over the the place, but I wonder anything we missed or anything else you wanted to leave us with as we go out.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's been a real delight to have this conversation. So thank you for bringing it together. Um, I mean, in in some ways, I think this conversation and, and what Eric and I do in general is meant sometimes to scare people about methods and to break this notion that surveys and qualitative research are easy to do. Um, but at the same time, I think it's it's also meant to be a, a message of empowerment and inclusion, that we need more people who care about rigorous research, who care about doing good evaluation. And, and so when we push hard on these little nitpicky things about the methodological design it's not to make this a, an exclusionary kind of space it's to say that we need to rally this community together and, and empower people to do good reliable work that can then be um, mobilized into transformative societal change that we need this kind of re- rigorous research and so um i hope that this this conversation can inspire um Folks to get involved in these kinds of aggregation and synthesis projects, to learn more about the the importance of rigorous research methods, um, to be part of the conversations that we're having with the working group around survey design, and to share the work you're doing and be part of that community, Um, and to uh, to build a really robust ecosystem for doing, to steal Eric's book title, doing real research um, that can ultimately affect positive change. So.
0: Well, in my unscientific uh, uh, research, I would share with you that in my discussions with students, which often ground me, uh, they're ready. And, and the, the idea that you would actually care about uh, scientific and social scientific methodology and actually trying to make people's lives better, that doesn't put them off. They're, they're up for that in a big way. So I have some hope. Uh, The the kinds of conversations I'm having with students right now in the midst of this pandemic are just absolutely inspiring. Um, So thank you both for your time. Eric Jensen and Eric Kennedy. Eric Jensen gets the the, uh, meritorious award for earliest COVID call. I think participants, thank you so much for making time to both of you. You can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time, and we will see you tomorrow for another discussion. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about Uh, pediatric AIDS and the comparability to the COVID-19 pandemic. So please do join us for that. We'll see you then. Stay healthy, everybody. Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks. Thank you.